Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On December 24, 1877, Thomas Edison filed a patent for a new invention he referred to as a talking machine. For the first time ever, audio could be captured, played back, stored, shared, and analyzed. When asked what the point of his machine was, Edison listed some future possibilities. His phonograph, as he called it, would eventually be used as a method of preserving great speeches. It could be used for making audio letters, giving dictation, It could be a talking clock, a telephone answering machine. It could be used for remote learning. And way down the list was reproduction of music. That original talking machine technology has evolved greatly over the years, and the capture and reproduction of music has moved way up on Edison's original list of uses. The recorded music industry is now worth tens and tens of billions of dollars. But The phonograph also gave birth to a new type of music industry. When it first went on sale, copyright laws regarding the phonograph and Edison cylinders weren't ready. They had been drafted and they had been enforced, but with the printed word in mind, not with audio recordings. So this meant that people began making recordings that weren't exactly authorized in the proper ways. This gave birth to another industry one that worked in the shadows of record labels, music publishers, performing rights organizations, and all the rest of the legitimate recorded music industry. What started with secretly recorded Edison phonograph cylinders progressed through reel-to-reel tape machines, unauthorized vinyl records, cassettes, CDs, and digital files freely traded online. You may have some of these recordings in your collection, and you may not even know it. The original name of such recordings is bootlegs. Here are a few things about them that you might want to know. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. That's Pearl Jam bootlegging themselves at the Molson Center in Montreal on October 4th, 2000. That was the 49th show of the tour for the binaural album and the first gig on the second North American leg. This was also part of a massive release of 72 live albums that the band called Official Bootlegs. Pearl Jam was still very much in their rebel stage and was determined to work outside the standard recording music industry system as much as possible. When he was a kid, 
Eddie Vedder was always sneaking tape recorders into concerts to make illicit documents of the show so he could enjoy the experience again and again and again at home. When Pearl Jam hit it big, Eddie and the band not only allowed fans to make recordings at their shows, but also encouraged it. And to underscore the point, and to provide fans with the best-sounding recordings possible, they got into this whole official bootleg business. They were originally sold as CDs in plain, illegal-looking packaging, basically a brown cardboard sleeve, and they were insanely popular. The band immediately set a record for having the most albums on the Billboard Top 200 chart simultaneously. And the figure I have is that Pearl Jam sold almost 14 million of these releases since they started coming out in the fall of 2000. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is part one of another look at the world of bootleg recordings. And believe me, there is a lot to talk about. But before we go any further, let's identify exactly what our subject is. The term bootleg goes back at least 100 years to the era of prohibition, when alcohol was illegal in the U.S. and for a while in Canada. Looking for a bottle of whiskey was like shopping around for a kilo of smack back then. But even though the teetotalers and the prohibitionists won with the law, at least temporarily, the demand for booze did not disappear, of course. This created an opportunity for criminals and gangsters, and they made a lot of money by providing illegal liquor. However, just like with today's cartels, getting the product from its source to the customer was tricky. And once you, the customer, secured your supply, you had to keep it out of sight while also keeping it handy. It became fashionable to own a curved metal flask that held maybe eight ounces of hooch. It was curved so it fit nicely in the leg of a tall boot. You were then able to take your bootleg whiskey wherever you wanted. Over time, the word bootleg was applied to anything that was illegally manufactured, distributed, and sold. And that eventually included music, which was obtained illegally. Physical bootleg recordings are different from counterfeit or pirated albums. If we talk about counterfeit or pirated records, those are vinyl records, tapes, or CDs manufactured to look as indistinguishable as possible from the real thing. It's just like knockoff clothing and leather goods by luxury brands. At first glance, they may look real, but once you inspect them closely, you may find a lot of defects and mistakes. Because they're made with very little overhead, no more paying those pesky artists and their royalties, counterfeit records are cheap, and they undercut legitimate records. The profit margins are huge. Counterfeits and pirated records were big business for the mob in America for decades, especially when it came to stocking mob-controlled jukeboxes in the 1940s and 50s. There's still a problem in places like China, Russia, along with certain places in South America and Africa, but that's an entirely different story. Instead, we're going to talk about recordings like this. As a longtime Smashing Pumpkins fan, I was always looking for unofficial recordings. I especially love the ones that documented special gigs. If you know your pumpkins, you'll know that Billy Corgan broke up the band for a while, and there was a final performance on December 2nd, 2000 at the Cabaret Metro in Chicago. So this is historic, right? Somebody needed to document that event. And eventually, this recording, made by someone in the audience, somehow leaked out. Please don't ask me about that.
That recording was obviously made by somebody in the audience with a mic trying to catch the music as best as they possibly could. Yeah, it's, it is raw and it's more than a little lo-fi, but I also think it captures the energy of a historic live gig. This type of bootleg is known as an audience recording for obvious reasons. Another type is known as a soundboard recording. This is when a recording device is plugged directly into the soundboard of the PA, which allows for clean capture of what's happening on stage without all the audience sounds overpowering the performance. There's also a third type of bootleg that involves non-live recordings, but we'll get to that. Bootlegging intellectual property goes back centuries, at least to the 15th century after Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press, offering the first book, we think, in 1457. Once the printing press took off, it became easy, or, well, easier, for books to be made widely available because they no longer had to be copied out by hand one at a time. But this created a new problem. Who, exactly, had the right to copy a book or any other bit of written word? This led to the first copyright laws in the late 15th and early 16th century. These laws literally spelled out who had the right to copy someone's intellectual property. Authors like Shakespeare, for example, needed to be protected from being ripped off. Shakespeare's nemesis was a printer named Thomas Pavier, who ran off copies of Shakespeare's plays and sold them without giving him a cut. Sometimes Pavier would even sell early drafts, unfinished demos, of whatever Will was working on. Copyright protection started with the printed word. There was a major law passed in England in 1662, but then it expanded out to other creations over the following decades and centuries. For example, when it comes to music, sheet music fell under copyright in the late 18th century. When Thomas Edison showed up with his talking machine about 100 years later, copyright law was completely unprepared to deal with this new technology. Creators argued that their audio performances should be protected from unauthorized copying and distribution, just as authors were protected from someone running off copies of their books. Britain was the first country to recognize that sound recordings needed copyright protection. The United States didn't really get around to properly dealing with the matter until, believe it or not, 1972. This created some interesting situations. For example, a song from 1922, depicted as sheet music, was in the public domain, meaning it was free for use and copying by anyone. No fees needed to be paid, and no permission needed to be obtained. However, an audio recording of that music from that same sheet music and recorded in 1922 did not enter the public domain until 2022. Now, let's talk about recording contracts, something that came into being in the early 20th century. When an artist signs a contract with a record label, it states that the label has exclusive rights to whatever the artist creates. The label then markets and sells that material on the artist's behalf, taking a slice of the profits for its trouble. The bootleg problem begins when a third party violates that exclusivity. The artist's music is distributed and sold for a profit by someone who has no legal right to do so. That third party does not contribute to the costs of making that music and seeks to reap nothing but profit. The artist is not compensated for their time or talent, and neither is the record label cut in on any profit made by this third party. So in other words, bootlegging is like fencing stolen property. Further 
The Tragically Hip, and not from any official live album. Let's let's just leave it at that. The godfather of all bootlegging, and when you get down to it, the godfather of music piracy, was a guy named Lionel Mapleson, the official librarian at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. He was originally a classical musician from London who dreamed of being in a world-famous orchestra one day. But that didn't happen. However, he did come from a long line of music librarians and got a job with the Met in the very late 1800s. In early 1900, he bought an Edison talking machine and was immediately smitten. That's when a friend brought him a Bettini, a brand of phonograph using Edison's technology that was capable of recording up to two minutes of audio on wax cylinders. It was about the size of a suitcase and actually quite portable. Mabelson kept a diary. On March 22, 1900, he wrote, For the present, I neither work properly nor eat nor sleep. I'm a phonograph maniac, always making or buying records. The Bettini apparatus is simply perfect. Mapleson immediately saw the potential of recording performances at the Met from a perch high on a catwalk above the stage, maybe 40 feet above the musicians. Not all recordings were kept. If Mapleson thought it was a subpar performance or recording, he erased the cylinders by carefully shaving the grooves out of the wax and reusing the cylinder. There's some dispute as to whether he made and sold these recordings in secret or if he actually sought permission from the Met and the musicians. Here's an example of what he captured. This is a performance of Tosca from 1903. To capture the entire opera, Mapleson had to quickly swap out a full cylinder for a fresh one every two minutes. Mapleson made about 120 of these very fragile cylinder recordings over about three years before he suddenly stopped, probably because the Met found out and wanted to start making and selling their own recordings. Still, he kept his job as a librarian and stayed in that position for 52 years. Lionel Mapleson died of a heart attack on December 21, 1937. In 1939, many of those impossible-to-mass-produce recordings started to be converted to 10-inch 78 RPM records. And over the years, other Mapleson recordings have turned up. If you're curious, there is a collection available known as the Mapleson Cylinders, featuring about 100 different performances. Now, as you heard, cylinder recording machines weren't exactly capable of capturing audio in anything close to high fidelity. But magnetic tape came along, and that changed everything for bootleggers and pirates. To recap, magnetic tape and the reel-to-reel recorder was invented by the Nazis in the 1930s by a company that would later manufacture poison gas for use in concentration camps. The technology was captured by the American Army at the end of World War II and taken back to the States by Major Jack Mullen. He created a company called Ampex and sold the idea of recording to magnetic tape to Bing Crosby for his radio shows. From there, it spread to recording studios, changing forever the way we capture and manipulate audio. At first, these reel-to-reel machines were big and bulky, but they were way better than earlier devices that used steel tape or wires to store the data. And it wasn't long before they got smaller and more powerful. And this is exactly what jazz fans wanted. They'd been trying to make live recordings as far back as the 1930s. And as the popularity of all flavors of jazz became more popular, fans became frustrated with the inability of record labels to keep up with their demand. 
That's when hardcore types started making their own recordings using their own reel-to-reel machines right there in the club. Everybody was more or less totally okay with this because these early recordists were not seen as bootleggers or pirates, but archivists who were doing the world of jazz a favor. For example, a lot of The Legend of Charlie Parker would have been lost if not for someone in the audience recording him. Here he is with Dizzy Gillespie in New York in 1947. Total bootleg here. Bootlegs made with old wire recorders, old acetate cutting machines, and newer reel-to-reel machines continued through the 1950s. And then, in 1963, a major, major technological breakthrough. That's where we'll pick things up next. This is part one of a deep look into the world of bootlegging music over the decades. We're now up to 1963, and this is when Philips, the Dutch electronics company, introduced the compact cassette, an invention from a team led by a guy named Leo Otens. The cassette was literally a reel-to-reel tape miniaturized inside a plastic shell, four inches across, two and a half inches high, and half an inch thick. They played and could record on machines that were smaller, and thus far more portable, than a reel-to-reel unit. And this made it perfect for sneaking into shows to make audience recordings. The cassette gave birth to tape trader culture, underground networks of music fans who made bootlegs and traded copies with other bootleggers. This was all pre-internet, obviously, so all communications were done through print ads and the mail. It was very uncool to charge for your bootlegs. Tape trader culture operated on a pay-it-forward, take-a-penny-leave-a-penny basis. And this became the domain of megafans around the world who wanted documentation of every single live performance of their favorite acts. They weren't bootlegging. They were documenting and archiving for the sake of the artist's legacy. No evil intentions, no exchange of money. A lot of acts were the obsession of tape traders, but the most famous of them all was the Grateful Dead. They were almost never heard on the radio, and most of their famous live jams never made it to any official release. No two shows were ever alike. The biggest deadheads wanted all those special in-concert moments, and there were plenty. By 1972, there were deadhead tape exchanges run by fans all over the planet. Many of the more serious tapers used a tape deck called the Nakamichi 550. It was small, and it was excellent at capturing audio. Back at home, the tapers would have multiple cassette machines running at the same time to copy the tape that they made at the show. Those tapes would then be sent out to people on their list, often with personalized artwork. Here's a sample of what a dead bootleg, sorry, dead document sounded like. This is from a show at Golden Gate Park in San Francisco on September 28, 1975. There are thousands, thousands of dead tapes like that out there. There were books and online archives devoted to them. And although the Grateful Dead originally frowned on fans recording their shows, they eventually softened and began encouraging them. 
As far as I can tell, The Dead is the first band to create taping sessions where fans could set up their gear to record the show. That happened on October 27, 1984, when The Dead played the Berkeley Community Theater. The results were pretty good for the tapers who knew what they were doing. Here's a bit of a clip. Today, tons of acts officially allow taping of their shows. I already mentioned Pearl Jam, but the list also includes the Dave Matthews Band, Fugazi, Iron Maiden, Fish, Weezer, Metallica, Sonic Youth, 50 Cent, Black Crows, Blues Traveler, and even Radiohead. Here they are at the Glastonbury Festival on June 28, 1997. Radiohead might be taper-friendly, but until the advent of the smartphone, which made prohibiting recordings of shows moot, I mean, everybody sneaks in a phone to a show, right? Most acts did whatever they could to keep the live bootlegs from not just leaking out, but from being made. Why? Well, an act having a bad night did not want that performance to be documented anywhere. Their record label didn't like it that it wasn't in charge of these recordings being made. And a lot of these recordings didn't stay in the tape trader community. They were being pressed onto vinyl or CD and sold. That is copyright infringement and a violation of intellectual property law. If you're old enough and you used to go to shows, you may remember being shaken down by security looking for anyone who snuck in any recording equipment. This means that tapers had to get creative. Some people would break down their gear into constituent parts, and give a piece to different people going to the show. Once inside, they'd meet up in a place like the bathroom to assemble the recording setup. Others shoved everything from recorders and microphones to mic stands down their pants, and then limp into the gig pretending to be disabled. And if, let's say, a hockey game was on the night before a show, a taper might go to the game, hide his gear somewhere inside the arena, and then retrieve it for a taping session the following night, circumventing concert security completely. And again, Nobody bothers with this anymore because of smartphones. We're a long way from which every single concert ticket was printed with the warning, no photographic or recording devices allowed. It's times like these you learn to live again. It's times like these you give and give again. It's times like We'll come back to more on the bootleggers known as tape traders in just a sec. Hold on. Becoming a proficient tape trader required practice and skill. If you're making a recording from the audience, you have to fight to find the correct spot in the venue. You need to be able to pick up what's coming through the PA clearly and accurately. And you want to keep the audience noise to its proper level. The last thing you want for your tape is the jerk next to you who insists on singing along to every song. There are other things to think about, too. What kind of tape do you use? Maxell 2s and TDK SAs were among the best, as far as I can remember. When did you flip the tape? How to document the set list? What kind of artwork should accompany the tape? Or should there be any artwork at all? And what gear was used to make the recording? This is all very important information. 
Tape trading comes with many rules and much etiquette. As much as some acts and record labels hated fan-made tapes of shows, we have to come back to this idea of documenting important in-concert events that would have otherwise been lost forever. Let me give you an excellent example. On March 1st, 1994, Nirvana played a show in Munich, Germany. They played at a place called Terminal 1, an old airplane hangar. Kurt Cobain was not well. He'd been battling bronchitis and laryngitis. Plus, he was in a really bad place when it came to his drug addiction and mental health. He struggled that night. About 3,000 people were there to see Nirvana. Despite Kurt's situation and a bunch of electrical problems, the band played 23 songs, and at least one person had smuggled in a tape machine. The last song of the night was Heart-Shaped Box. No one had any idea that this would be the final time Kurt Cobain would appear on stage. In just over a month, he would be dead. And had no one smuggled in a tape deck, we might not have a record of that historic performance. Nirvana, from March 1st, 1994. And thanks to a tape trader, we have a document of Kurt Cobain's last ever live performance. There's another type of audience recording that we need to talk about, and it didn't involve going to the show at all. There was a time from the 1970s to at least the late 1990s where concerts were routinely broadcast on FM rock radio stations. Sometimes an artist would come in and perform live in the studio. Sometimes the station would have a live feed coming directly from a recording studio or a club. And sometimes it was a professionally engineered live recording that was then distributed from one source to many for later playback. For example, on November 17, 1970, Elton John, who was still very early in his career, performed a 48-minute concert live on WABC-FM in New York. The performance itself came from a recording studio, It went over the air in great FM radio quality. Many hundreds, maybe thousands of people recorded the concert from their radios. The result was that the performance was widely bootlegged. Elton John's record company was so alarmed that just a few months later, they were forced to issue an official version of the show. Another famous bootleg from that era featured David Bowie at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium on October 20th, 1972. This was during the Ziggy Stardust tour. He was about 70 shows into a 190-day tour that would cement his reputation as a rock icon. Just as with the Elton John situation two years earlier, the show was originally a radio broadcast for a local FM station. And on this night, Bowie and the band were in awesome form. This became a bootleg and then a semi-legal release that was wrapped up in all kinds of litigation for a while. And finally, an official release came on June 3rd, 2008. Let's have some of that. You know the bit comes out better on the stolen guitar. You're the blessed where the spiders from far. Yeah, come on, come on. You really got it to bend your way. But come on, 
going live in Santa Monica, once an illegal bootleg from a radio show, and since 2008, a legitimate release. On part one of our look at bootlegging, we've covered some definitions. We've covered some history, some technology, and the whole concept of tape trading. On part two, we'll look at different sources of illegal bootlegs, their role in file sharing, and the ultimate near death of this part of music collecting. Meanwhile, let's meet up on all the social networks. We can connect through my website, which is a journal of musical Please feel to email me anytime through alan at alancross.ca. And don't forget that there are hundreds of ongoing history podcasts available. You can get them wherever you download your podcasts. Plus, there's my other show, Uncharted, Crime and Mayhem in the Music Industry. These are true crime stories about when bad things intersect with people in the music biz. Again, that's Uncharted, Crime and Mayhem in the Music Industry. Get it wherever podcasts are downloaded. See you next time for the second half of our exploration of bootlegging and other illegal recordings. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Ellen Cross.